Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, hey, Steve. Shock jock, Steve Price. I don't like shock jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. This is On The Record, a podcast series presented by me, Steve Price, talking to the people who shape your lives every day in our media, from TV and radio to newspapers and original podcasts. Today, we feature the larger-than-life character, Sam Newman. I've probably been the most criticised and traduced person in the media in Australia for probably two decades. I wouldn't have it any other way because you are what you are. I know who I am. I know what I am. Uh, I take it with a grain of salt. Uh, People have a right to say whatever they like about me, but always remember this about critics. Critics are like eunuchs in a harem. They're there every night. They see it done every night. They see how it should be done, but they can't do it themselves. Well, today our guest on uh, our On The Record podcast is a former elite sportsman. He's a radio and television personality, a star, I should say. Uh, A late adopter to new media as a podcaster. He's on Twitter, a unique character, and he's been in the public eye, this is incredible, since the age of 18, and he turns... 76 later this year. I hope he doesn't mind me reminding me of that. So almost 60 years, many of them as a headliner and more recently a headline for over many years. I've known Sam Newman for 33 of those years as a boss, a colleague, a competitor, and sometimes, rarely, I must say, a critic. Sam, thanks for joining us at On The Record. You might be one of the fittest 75-year-olds going around. How do you do it? Well, just lead a moderate life, Stephen. I don't drink. Not for any health reasons, just so I don't lose my license for drink driving, which I did 20 years ago, and uh, mainly to protect any employer that might be employing me. But that's, um, as of a week ago, uh, redundant, so I can do what I like now, I suppose. You don't drink because you don't want other people driving your car. That's the real reason, right? Probably right, because I'm in the top 1% of drivers in Australia. <laughs> We're going to talk about your motorsport career at some point. But I, look, I, I don't want to start at the beginning, which is where a lot of these podcasts, and congratulations, by the way, on You Can't Be Serious. I think that's a, a, a brilliant piece of work by you and Mike Sheehan and, and Don Scott. I listen to it regularly, and it is um, must listening, I must say, because it's not like the normal chat, which makes it very entertaining. But I want to start talking to you, though, today about your passions, life passions, and with something not many people would know about. You have been, and probably still are, but have been an astute collector of art. Tell me about your Jeffrey Smart involvement. Well, I was first introduced to, not introduced to Jeffrey Smart, I was first introduced to his style of painting when I went to an exhibition with someone I was going out with at the time and there was a painting on uh, hung at the gallery and it was of four shop roller doors and it said the four shop doors is what it said and I looked at it and I thought how simple and neat and clinical and austere and um, absolutely symmetrical are those doors and it really and it was painted so that it looked almost surreal. And I um, thought, wow, I like that. And uh, I didn't think about it much for a while. And then I found out it was a bloke called Jeffrey Smart, an Australian. And then an auction came up, I think, at Christie's. Um, 
some about a year later, and it was of a painting called The Guiding Spheres, which was one of his pivotal works. And I went to the auction and I had a friend, a friend of mine who you know, a man called Kevin King. Um, he was at the auction with me and I said, I'd like to buy that. I haven't got any class, Stephen, so I thought I'd try and buy some. <laughs> and so um, uh, the bidding got up and I think it got to, I think from memory, just under $300,000. And I was the six, Kevin said, who's standing beside me, said, am I keeping going with this? I said, yep, keep going. And he put his hand up for the final time and it was knocked down to me and I bought it and um, Jeffrey Smart got wind of this because I'm told, now I'm told this, that that was a world record price for one of his pieces of art at the time and uh, I was contacted by his representative later and he said, Jeffrey would like to meet you and have lunch with you. So he flew me up to Sydney where I met him and uh, Jeffrey's partner, who was a man. And uh, we had a very nice lunch on a pier up in uh, Sydney. And he said, you've um, put the value of my artwork up by 50% by buying that. And I thought, well, that's good. And um, so I became an instant expert on Jeffrey Smart and an art collector. And uh, I since bought uh, about four of them, which I uh, subsequently sold all of them. I got offered uh, everything's for sale, as they say, Stephen. So I sold the uh, artwork, the guiding spheres, to a very prominent person who you'd know, but I won't mention because I won't uh, betray a confidence, uh, and I uh, sold it to him. For how much? Well, um, I knew you were going to ask that, and I've been asked that a lot. I had a number plate called with number 17, the 17th registered car ever in Victoria. Your football and my number, num yes. Exactly. So someone offered me that many years ago, and I bought that for $30,000 at the time. I'm told now to fetch about a million dollars, uh, but I sold the guiding spheres and the number 17 for a job lot. So... I can't differentiate between what the painting was worth or what the number plate was worth, so um, I can't tell you what I sold it for, really. Back at that auction, when you got to $300,000, and I presume you were getting uh, the dentist, Kevin King, to bid because you thought if you were sticking your hand up, the auctioneer would be adding zeros to it because he thought you had a lot of money. Um, or the people buying uh, uh, bidding against me. I'm not sure, but I just thought I tried to have a bit of anonymity, uh, which was a bit silly because he was standing beside me and I kept nudging him. So, yeah. Most of us, regardless of our income, would, uh, if we were buying our first ever piece of art, uh, would be a little nervous at that sort of level. Couldn't you have perhaps begun a, a little more cheaply and bought something a little less expensive? Well, I wasn't a great, I just wasn't into, I wasn't an art connoisseur. I have since bought uh since bought several other pieces of art, but not like that. That was my first foray into art, and I thought, well, if it, if if someone would bid against me for up until that price, they must think that it is worth it, or else why would they be bidding? Uh, would have been knocked down for fifty or sixty grand, and I thought, well. There's probably an investment opportunity here, not that I bought it for an investment at all. I would never hang art on my wall if I didn't like looking at it, not whether it was just for an investment. I was offered 
um, I was offered. I interviewed um, I interviewed Brett Whiteley, probably the last interview he ever had uh, when he was in Sydney. And when he passed on my interview, I think his daughter or his wife, ex-wife, um, heard the interview. And there was an art piece of art called Fat Ladies on Bondi Beach, I think it was called. Uh, those really um, uh, grotesque-looking paintings that uh, represented sort of was uh, represented not any form at all. But I didn't like. I didn't just didn't like it visually. But I knew it was a tremendously collectible piece, and I was offered that before it went to auction. And I that was worth some millions of dollars. And I a didn't have the money, but b didn't try and buy it because I just didn't like the uh, visual aesthetic appeal of the art. So in this interview with Whiteley, one of Australia's greatest painters who tragically uh, took his own life and and was addicted to drugs, did you tell him you didn't actually like what he painted? No, because uh, I had a fantastic interview. Well, when I say fantastic, I used to do interviews for The Sun and then it became The Herald Sun where I would... uh, Outstanding work they were, outstanding. So The Herald Sun sent me up He. Rado, the watch manufacturer, R-A-D-O, had commissioned him along with Andy Warhol, but they'd commissioned Brett Whiteley to paint a picture with a Rado watch in it. And uh, this was the launch of the painting, and they sent me up to interview um, Brett Whiteley, the Herald Sun did. Um, Unbeknownst to me, they hadn't told him that I was coming up to interview him. They just said, yes, go up and interview him. And I thought, so I arrive at the uh, reception, and I said, uh, he was chatting to people, saying, hello, darling, hello, thanks for coming. And I said, uh, Brett, I'm um, Sam Newman from the Herald Sun. I've come to interview He said, what? I said, I've come to interview He said, who said? I had, a, I had a, an interview with Brett Whiteley for 40 minutes about why he wouldn't be interviewed by me. <laughs> and uh, I've still got it on tape. It was fantastic. He said, I have no, I'm not interviewing anyone. And I said, why not? He said, well, who are you? And I said, I'm an ex-footballer. He said, who sent you up? This is how it went. And in the end, I asked him, I said, well, why, why can't I ask you about, have you done your best work when you're on drugs? Have you done? I asked him questions he'd never been asked of anything ever before. And um, uh, so we put it in the paper. It was an interview about a non-interview, and it went for 40 minutes. And I'm told it was the last interview he ever did. Only you could pull that off. You are a, an investor. One of your other passions is cars. You collect cars, um, mainly American muscle cars, Mustangs, Ford Mustangs. You've got a, I understand, a Carroll Shelby original. Have you seen the Ford versus Ferrari film that's based on a lot of Carroll I Shelby's have. racing? What did you think of it? Uh, well, uh, um, that's a very interesting question. I thought it was a crock of crap. Me too. But I, well, I'm glad you said that because it, it was typically American nonsense that they uh, they made it all syrupy. And uh, the, if they had a bit more about Enzo Ferrari's relationship with the Ford, Mr. Henry Ford or whoever his son was or whoever's running Ford, they'd had a bit more of that relationship and how uh, Ferrari, how they got on and, and the racing uh, rather than all the other smolchy nonsense they went on with, 
But I um, did see the film and I thought it was just a typical American piece of schmaltz. Yeah, and the character that they chose, the I can't remember the name of the actor to play Shelby, yeah. was completely miscast because Carol Shelby was a huge bloke, wasn't he, physically? Yes. Uh, that Shelby well you've known. got, what would that be worth? Well, so uh, one of my uh, passions was to uh, buy a 429 Boss Mustang, which is the most collectible muscle car that Ford ever built. Uh, they built 3,000 of them so they could race them at NASCAR in 1969, and they uh, they sold one of them. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying this because uh, this is what I paid for it. I didn't. But they sold one of them on Meekham Auto Auctions uh, 18 months ago in America for 550000 American dollars. That would make it almost 800000 here, plus the commission. So I bought one from... Incidentally, a man I spoke to on on, on um, our podcast uh, just recently today, in fact, a man called Andrew Bogart. I bought it from him. The basketballer. Uh, he did, the basketballer. And I was chatting to him about it today. And uh, so I sold, I had two Shelbys, a 350 Shelby and a 500 Shelby Mustang. I had a V12E type uh, Roadster uh, convertible um Jaguar, and I had a Malou Holden, and I sold four cars to buy this 429 Boss Mustang, which I still have to this day, and I drive it every week. That's your white one? No, that's a crimson one. The white one is my everyday car, which is worth about 30 grand, a left-hand drive 1967 Mustang, and I have a 1959 Cadillac, the one with the huge fins. And um, I have a 1965 Thunderbird, uh, Thelma and Louise Thunderbird, if you've ever seen the film Thelma and Louise. The um, the, the attraction to American cars and that period of American uh, production and history, the 50s, the 60s mainly, uh, you're fascinated with that period of American life, aren't you? I mean, you're a long-time admirer of Frank Sinatra. I interviewed you on the, on, actually, on the night that Frank Sinatra passed away, we had a long chat on air yes. live about that. Uh, but you yes. you love that period of of American life, and it would appear to me that, and we're going to get into a bit of a discussion later about the state of the United States right now. But it would appear to me that that was the the height of the United States almost as a civilization, and it's been going downhill ever since. <laughs> hey, you're probably right. The reason I was fascinated with those. Cars is I used to go in the late 60s, early 70s and watch Bob Jane and Norm Beachy and Leo Gagan and Alan Moffat and all the top Australian drivers who used to drive American muscle cars. They used to drive the Coca-Cola Mustang and Norm Beachy used to drive a Chevy Impala and um, Bob Jane used to drive a Jaguar. They, they used to, this was before General Motors and Commodores and Falcons used to race in the supercars, and I just got a fascination for them. I loved loved them and uh, got into uh, racing them myself. I raced at Bathurst a couple of years in a row, um, which was one of the great highlights of uh, (laughs) my life, if you like, and uh, for me. And uh, so that's why I was fascinated by them. I know nothing about cars, couldn't pull a car apart, (laughs) wouldn't know how to fix anything, but I just liked them. Uh, I looked up your racing career, actually, and you actually put a Ferrari on pole one day. Uh, I think it was at Sandown. The reason you managed to do that, and I think you beat Jim Richards 
from from memory, and because everybody after your lap it rained like hell, and no one could get anywhere near you. Is that true? That is absolutely true. I raced against the great Peter Brock, Jim Richards, all the top uh, touring car drivers at Sandown, and I was tenth fastest in practice and qualifying uh, in practice. So to get the position on the grid. You had to do a time trial like the uh, F1 cars. You go around and depending on your time, you start either first on the grid or 10th. And um, and then all the rest who didn't qualify finish 11th, 12th and so on. So I was the 10th. So I go out in this uh, Ferrari, a Modena, 360 Modena. And I did a lap, which was pretty good for me. And the moment I went across the line to finish my lap, it absolutely started to hose down. <laughs> so the um, ninth, eighth, seventh, sixth cars had to do their qualifying in teeming rain and I was 12 seconds quicker in one lap than uh, all the other great drivers. So come Saturday or Sunday, which was the race, here's me on pole position with all these great drivers behind me and uh, the flag went down. By the time I got to the first turn, eight of them had passed me. <laughs> you finished six, I think, from memory. Um, well, from memory, not, but I still have the trophy here, pole sitter for that race, and uh, I have it proudly displayed next to a uh, helmet I used to drive and a driving suit. You've fallen in and out of love and other passion with golf. Are you back in love with it? And is that golf temper where you throw bags into, into lakes, past? Is that of the uh, uh, history, yes, history no, now? I know uh, you love this, uh, Stephen, but I've matured a little since then. Just in that uh, particular, I uh, took it very seriously uh, in days gone by and then uh, something comes over you when you get to a certain new age, age and you say, what are you getting annoyed for? You're not doing this for a living. Who cares how, what your score is? I, I do have a personal pride in how I play, but now I'm very philosophical about it. I do get annoyed with I, if I hit bad shots, but I only get annoyed with myself and I have no um, no angst at all necessarily. I don't throw clubs. Maybe a little invective every now and again, but uh, I enjoy the game of golf and I enjoy actually getting annoyed with myself. It's um, some sort of cathartic therapy for me. But you're a competitive beast. I mean, does that come with you can't play top-level sport unless you hate to lose? Is that where that comes from? Oh, I think so. I, I played 18 years for the Geelong Football Club, played 303 games from, and uh, I used to love the competitive aspect of, and this is a thing that hardly happens these days, you actually used to have to play on an opponent. You have to used to have to play on an opposing ruckman or an opposing centre-half back when I played at centre-half forward, and I used to love the competitive aspect of playing on someone and trying to beat them or trying to have them stop beating me. And um, I never used to worry about how the side went because that was someone else's problem. I used to just try and do my job and beat the person I played on. So you become very competitive if you have that attitude, and uh, that's the attitude I had all through my football career. Talk about football in a minute. We're talking about passions. Women have been another passion of yours over your 75 years. You spoke recently about the mother of one of your children, Leonie, running you over behind your house in Brighton. Not the greatest end of a, to a relationship, was it? No, and uh, got a lot of blowback from uh, the two people, <laughs> the people involved in that. Uh, I didn't mention um, um, the person's name, but it was mentioned on our podcast and uh, 
got severe criticism from the people involved. So um, it's a bit of a touchy subject, but it happened and it was well documented. So um, well, we won't go back over ha- the we won't go back over the details. But I do remember very clearly, as if it was yesterday, uh, you rang me the next morning saying, "Look," and I was uh, the program director at Three W, where you were doing football, and you rang and said, "Look, I can't go to the ground today. I can't work because I've been run over." Now that's yes. going to be the best excuse I've ever had. Uh, from anybody working for me. I quizzed you about it and you explained it. You went to hospital. You had a shattered leg. Tell me about uh, broke my ankle. And your ankle. Uh, tell me about uh, the bloke in the next room, Michael Long and his guitar. Oh, yes, that's right. I, so I was in hospital. I broke my leg in a couple of places, my ankle in a couple of places, and I was taken to the emergency uh, emergency wing of the hospital and then put into a room and... Um, it was Michael Long who was having an operation, a football operation, a knee operation. Essendon and champion, in, super Indigenous Essendon player. Champion. Yeah, super Indigenous player. And uh, he was in the next um, bed next to me uh, with a little petition and I could hear this uh, man singing and playing a guitar and I thought, <laughs> oh, it struck me, what is this? And um, uh, someone pulled the curtain back and said, you know, Michael Long. And that's how I met Michael Long. He's sitting there playing the guitar and singing while he's uh, – I presume he had a cartilage operation done on his knee or something, so he was uh, in remedial session for the Essendon Football Club while I was uh, getting my leg fixed from being run over. Slightly annoying with him having some friends in singing songs while you're trying to sleep? Well, um, um, yes. These days, uh, yes, <laughs> slightly then. Uh, today, it's where you wouldn't say it's annoying because you'd be accused of all things if you said it was annoying these days. So you would just grin and bear it. But um, um, uh, I was, um, uh, yes, so I would just say that it was a bit annoying, but um, uh, that's just life. It's not quite how you described it to me when I talked to you about it, but no, we'll leave it at that. That's no, that's right. <laughs> You've made enough headlines gone, recently. That's right, because in days gone by, I would have described it a little differently than how I'm portraying it now. Let's go back to 1964, Geelong at the age of 18. You play 300 games, finish your great career, I think, on the bench. What was it like in... No, I'm oh, going to correct that. Oh, hello. I started on... I, well, this is in the days when you could, uh, for team management and team structure, I did start on the bench on my 300th game against Collingwood down at Geelong, uh, but I came on after 10 minutes and played at centre-half forward on... Renee Kink, who was at centre-half back, and I played the whole game, and Geelong won the game, and uh, while I did start on the bench, I didn't stay on it. Why were you on the bench in the first place? Because the coach, Bill Goggin, thought it would be, uh, for team structure and balance, it would be novel for someone who's playing their 300th game to start on the bench. I never understood that myself, why that would be a motivating factor. Not one of Bill's better suggestions. No, well, Bill, Bill, I don't think was ever going to assemble any rockets in his backyard with a view to putting them on the moon. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, I, 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 but in those days, you didn't question the coach. If he said jump, you said how high. So I did. And you used to jump very high. Now, uh, speaking about Collingwood, you were in a final. You took a blow to the kidneys. You've told me this story several times, but I think it needs retelling because it says a lot about your character and your relationship with your dad. Is it right that? They took you down to the dressing room and left you there and your dad came down and found you almost bleeding to death on a on a trolley in the middle of the change rooms while the game went on? Well, well, that is correct. Now, I don't want to uh, have people uh, – I don't want this to be too hokey and uh, have people start 
to feel sorry for me because I'm sure they wouldn't. But I um, slipped in the first semi-final in the first quarter against Collingwood at the MCG. I slipped and a bloke kneed me in the side. I presume it was an accident, but I'll never know. And he ruptured, unbeknownst to me, my kidney. And um, I remember getting up and the club were very averse to taking people off the ground at the start of a game because there was no such thing as an interchange bench then. This was in 1967. Uh, once you're off the ground, you're off. So they were very averse to taking people off the ground early in the game. So I remember standing up and going to try and compete for a boundary throw-in with the late Len Thompson. And Thompson brushed past me, hardly touched me, and the sensation that went through my body was excruciating. So I dropped to my knees and they took me off and uh, they lay me on a stretcher in the dressing rooms thinking they'd come back at half time to see how I was. Well, my father, who was at the game, came no. in. Uh, no, he, my late father, he came in and I was as white as a, well, I was white as a sheep. And um, if you got white sheets, I was as white as a sheet. And um, I asked him if he could help me to the urinal because I felt I needed to, um, um, to go to the urinal. And I uh, started to go to the urinal and it was pure blood came out. And uh, he panicked a bit, so did I. And he immediately uh, got the ambulance, which was in the race in case anyone was injured, which I was. And they put me in the back of the ambulance, taking my gear off as I, uh, the ambulance drove me to the Alfred Hospital. And I had my blood supply replaced twice because I was bleeding internally. And um, um, I'm told, the doctor told my mother that it was touch and go whether I would uh, just get through this or survive because I'd lost a lot of blood. But uh, the story ends, Stephen, because... Um, I'm still here, and uh, much to the chagrin of most people in the country, I survived, and uh, here I am with um, one kidney. Probably a pity the ambulance didn't perhaps come and check on you before your dad did. Um, now, there's a lot of talk around, of course, at the moment about the treatment of Indigenous Australians, and, and we'll talk yes. a bit later about the Black Lives Matters protests and all of that stuff. You played with an Aboriginal superstar, Polly Farmer. He's a mate of yours. I know you quietly did a lot for Polly over the years. Do you actually remember specifically him ever being racially abused on the field by either opposition players or people in the crowd? Never, ever. When he died last year, I think it was, I was asked that, and I've never, ever heard anyone over the fence or on the ground ever racially abuse or say anything of a racial nature to Graham Farmer. Never, ever heard it. I never heard uh, there weren't that many uh, Indigenous players playing when I started. When I finished, there were a number. I never heard any racial taunts or abuse from I didn't hear it from over the fence, whether whether it happened or not. It may have. I tend not to concentrate what people are doing over the fence, the crowd, but I never heard anyone on the field ever Racially abused. Some people would find that a, a really interesting answer, wouldn't they? I mean, you did play with well, some other Indigenous players. I think Sid Jackson was probably still playing for Carlton I, when you were playing. And there was an umpire called Glenn James, yes. who was an Indigenous, and he was a fantastic umpire. And um, he would say things like, um, "Yeah, if you, I mean, if, if I or someone disagreed with one of his decisions, uh, you'd say, well, that's a ridiculous decision, mate, Glenn.'" He'd say. Shut up, Sam, he said, or I'll point a bone at you. Uh, I mean, he used to send, he used to have 
he just used to take it in the spirit. No one ever abused him racially, mm. but he was up for it all. He took it to, uh, with a grain of salt. Not that, as I say, anyone ever abused him racially, and I never heard anyone uh, who I played with or against be racially abused. Maybe I've got selective deafness, I don't know, maybe selective memory, but I, someone says, oh, you must remember this when this happened. I don't. So I can just answer that honestly. So um, that's a, an interesting uh, interesting way to look at it because clearly there, there has been racial abuse in later years. I wonder, I wonder exactly what changed. I mean, I know you very well and that you judge people on their character as to the, the person you, you get to know them and you, you make a judgment on whether you, you think they're a good person or, or not a good person. If they're not a good person, you don't spend much time with them. The, the colour of someone's skin doesn't matter to you at all, does it? Well, look, the more you say that, the more people think, as I say, thou protestest too much. I can only just say that is a fact. And the reason I am singled out is because, A, I um, painted my, I, I put on blackface to pretend I was Nicky Winmar in the early stages of the footy show uh, because Nicky was meant to be on the show and he didn't turn up and I thought I'd help Eddie Maguire who was hosting the show out and I pretended I was Nicky Winmar. So during one of the ad breaks, I went out to the makeup room and put a bit of dark rouge on the face and came back and, of course, uh, that was unacceptable and um, Nicky Winmar, I know, didn't find it offensive. Uh, he might say he does now, but he didn't at the time and I apologised to him and he accepted that. So I was branded then as a racist. And then later on, of course, when the Adam Goods, I was asked on the footy show about Adam Goods and why people were booing him. And I said, words to the effect was of, I said, I think I said he's in denial about why people boo him. This was my opinion. Uh, he might have uh, taken offense at people who I never heard abusing him racially, but I said, He's in denial about why people are booing him because he was staging for free kicks. We had this discussion on the footy show, but that was considered racist because I called him out for wondering why people were booing him because it was the style of play. If you'll remember, he pretended to throw a spear at the Carlton cheer squad during an Indigenous round of football. And I said, if you're going to incite the Carlton cheer squad when you're giving them a belting anyhow you're probably going to be experienced people booing you. And then it continued. And then the AFL said, please, could you not boo Adam Goods? And that's like red rag to a bull. Every time he played, everyone booed him because the AFL had said not to. And now I'm sure that he has been racially abused, but I wasn't on about that. I was on about why he thought they were being, uh, why people were booing him because of the way he played football and some of his actions on the field. Nothing to do with his Aboriginality. So you're, you're, you're an e look, you're an easy target. I mean, it's the, the classic Australian uh, cut down a tall poppy. I mean, that's why. I mean, a lot of people have done a lot worse, clearly, uh, toward Indigenous Australians than you've ever done. So it was, your, it was your personality and the fact that you were a highly paid white man on TV that created that, surely. Yes, probably, and um, uh, as I say, we, at the footy show, which went for 20, 25 years, was based primarily most of, besides the actual discussion on football, was based on the um, um, satire and parody of who we sent up, 
and who we uh, took. Well, it was pricking big uh, balloons yeah. and, and t- getting That's people not correct. to take themselves so seriously, wasn't it? That's exactly how it started, and that's how it manifested itself. And most of the people we uh, poked fun at or did a bit of parody or satire on were uh, white males, sometimes uh, white females, uh, one in particular who took exception to what I did. And I don't think anyone, uh, we never took uh, any parody or satire on any indigenous people, for probably for obvious reasons except the, the bit I did about Nicky Winmo and my blackface. And, um, but I got branded, and, uh, and, and, and Stephen, if you think I'm complaining, I've never whinged about anything that's happened to me, and I've said this plenty of times before. If you uh, don't mind, I don't mind what you think or say about me, as long as you don't mind what I think or say about you. But you'll find that that's not a two-way street in most cases because uh, – um, I, I, I have a public persona and I, I uh, played the system and played the game and I would like to say, not trying to convince anyone, I'm completely different away from that, but that's, uh, as I say, never try and tell people who you are. Let them work it out for themselves. Yeah, that show started back in 1994. you got to think that 1994 is very different to, to 2020. I don't think now, thinking about it, that you'd actually get away with doing street talk anymore. Because you would be, no, you'd be criticised for having a, a crack at, at minorities or people who were fat or people who were unshaven or people who were <laughs> at bo or people who had broken teeth. I mean, you wouldn't get away with that anymore, would you? No, you wouldn't, Stephen. But we never tried to get away with that in the first place. Uh, incidentally, uh, probably the demise of the Footy Show really it dropping off as a must see live reality show with a bit of football mixed in came when street talk started to wane because of that very reason of the vocal minority, the people with agendas who thought, and we never, um, I can say this, you you can look up any former, they're on YouTube, any street talk we did, I never abused anyone for how they looked, how they spoke. I used to walk up to people and, invariably they would walk up to me and I would ask them a question and they would do the rest. And then we'd have a conversation. We'd let them, if you gave them enough rope, they would end up, they used to love hanging themselves. They used to actually hope that we would look, think that they were acting pretty stupidly so that they'd be put on television. They used to love it. And we never had any complaints about the people we spoke to, um, only about the people who watched it and thought that they should, uh, complain about the people we spoke to on their behalf. Uh, so that's how it wound down a bit in this uh, woke day and age of uh, 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 the, the, the world evolving. Uh, the company, the station, Channel 9, thought we better wind this back a bit because uh, we was, they were starting to get some blowback from the sponsors and people who watched the show and uh, that's how it came to an end. Yeah, your critics would probably say, oh, well, uh, Sam Newman's targeting and Channel 9's targeting various suburbs around Melbourne because they know no, if they go no. there, they're going yes. to have more interesting personalities no. and characters than if they go to Kew or Hawthorne or, no. or, or Turak. So, I mean, it's much so, more interesting to go to Sunshine or Dandenong or Broadmeadows, right? So, so it's a very good point, Stephen. We used to not target the suburb suburbs per se, but we used to, if something topical had happened, 
to a person that played in a suburb or came from a suburb or a district. We went all over Australia. We went to all the upper echelon suburbs, Turak and South Yarra and Hawthorne, and we went to all the other suburbs like Sunshine and Footscray, and just by the just by the distribution of the population in those areas, the most viable and formidable characters were in those suburbs. Um, and if we had, we, we did this all over Australia and we went everywhere. And um, people used to see us coming after a couple of years of doing street talk. They'd see me get out of the car and a cameraman and a sound recorders. And they, you, our critics, I asked a couple of our critics, journalists, to come with us on a street talk one day because they said exactly what you said. They said, oh, you're going to target these people. So I got out of the car uh, with this female journalist one day and um, she she was right into going to write us up and give us Larry Do. And as I got out of the car, about three people who uh, were probably the best subjects you could get for the uh, occasion they came up to me and I spoke to them and we put them on camera and then I spoke to a couple of us at the end of the day, at the end of the street talk, the woman said, I'm sorry, she said, I see what you mean. She <laughs> said, uh, "She said, I see you haven't targeted anyone in particular. I see that they've come to you. I see you've been polite and respectful to them, taking a bit of tongue in cheek, taking the piss out of them a little. Uh, but they were up for it and they tried to give uh, as much back as I gave them, but uh, they probably weren't as sharp as me. And we put them to air and uh, people used to love it. And the woman actually apologised for having a predetermined um, opinion of how we did it. So I can only say that. And um, But we wore a tremendous amount of flack for doing that and uh, people abused us and all that sort of thing. So um, Andy Warhols, people wanted to be famous for 15 seconds in their life. You upset the good folk of Adelaide a little bit, although I, I do know that they loved you. Um, Adelaide uh, was big the year the footy show started. You and I were in Adelaide in 1994 for a state of origin game. I don't know if you remember this, between uh, Victoria and South Australia, and the footy show had not started. I think the Sunday footy show on Channel 9 had done a grand final special in 1993, and you had been offered... Uh, the permanent gig on uh, a new show to be called The Footy Show, to go to air on a Thursday night, originally at, I think, 9.30, and you asked me whether you should do it. But that visit to Adelaide, you and I nearly died on Anzac Highway. Can you remember that? I can indeed. We spoke to uh, – now, I'm I'm happy to say that I'm, I'm – I'm not happy to say, I'm just announcing that I'm a heterosexual. And uh, yes. uh, you don't have to be a heterosexual really? today. You can you, your choice of who you wish to be and what you wish to be is absolutely uh, paramount these days. But um, I was chatting to a, a lass, a female, and um, young woman. She a young lass, a young lass, and she had a two-door, two-seater Toyota sports car. I think if you remember this correctly, and we asked her if she'd drive us down to um, uh, the suburb just out of... Glenelg, at the end of Anzac Highway. Very nicely said, Stephen. So uh, I believe she'd had a couple of drinks, which we didn't realise. We'd had a lot of drinks. We did realise we'd had a lot of drinks. And I think you were sitting on my knee on the car in the passenger seat and she was driving at possibly 150 down Anzac Highway, 150 kilometres an hour. Well, it felt like that anyhow because 
she was chatting to us while she was driving at this speed as we came up behind either a bus or a Pantechnican or a truck. And if I hadn't pulled the wheel to miss the truck uh, at that speed, we would be not having this conversation now. We would be resting in the memorial cemetery wherever we lived. Yep, you, me and her would have been uh, dead. That's the greatest bit of driving you ever did. That same trip, uh, I sat down in Hindley Street eating a pizza with you the next day, actually, probably recovering from the amount of alcohol we'd had the night before. You said, look, I've been offered this job on television. Should I do it? You were working on radio with 3AW, and I've also got this column in the Herald Sun, and I said, this is my bit of advice I gave you once in your life, uh, Whatever, whenever you're offered a job in the media, take it with both hands, let it run and see what happens. The rest history, right? That's correct, and uh, uh, that started with Eddie McGuire and Trevor Marmalade, uh, Eddie ringing me and saying, and the late Ian Johnson saying, um, um, we've got three, two people uh, locked in for a uh, panel show that we have no idea what we're doing, but we thought we'd uh, give it a run. And we'd like one other person, someone who's a bit more mature. Uh, well, I thought mature, they might have been more sensible. They just wanted an older person to come to add some balance to young, young Eddie and Trevor, who was a comedian. So we did our first uh, show. We had no idea what we we're doing. And, uh, our first sponsor was a, um, a men's club, a massage parlour. Uh, they really? uh, sponsored us. For, yes, <laughs> uh, top. Yes, it was the only. So they sponsored us for six weeks. And Ian Johnson said, um, "All right, we'll give it another six weeks." And the ratings got higher and higher. And as you said, the rest is history. And we lasted for twenty-five years until uh, I, um, I was. Uh, the show ended and then they tried to resurrect uh, the footy show a couple of years ago with some other people, a um, a comedian and a woman and a man in a wheelchair and um, uh, another couple of people and it had lost its um, original um, framework, if you like. And so the only thing I can say is the last time I was on the footy show, which was the grand final footy show the year before last and the grand final footy show last year, uh, they were the highest rating shows that uh, they've ever had in comparison to what shows were rating at that time. And we beat all the opposition, all other football shows, no matter what they say, we did by hands down. And so they're the last two times I appeared on the footy show, um, two ratings bonanzas. How talented was Eddie Maguire through that time? Well, Eddie McGuire receives a lot of criticism for people who like to uh, drag down the tall poppies, but I've said this plenty of times and I have no problem saying this. I don't feel embarrassed saying it, just like I don't feel embarrassed saying I think uh, Donald Trump's doing a great job in America. Uh, You'd be amazed at how many people just uh, think you're some sort of uh, spook for saying that. But um, Eddie McGuire is as good an operator on television in front of a camera as I've ever seen certainly in Australia and as good as I've ever seen uh, in the world. Uh, You would know this, Stephen, being on television yourself on the project and doing other things, that to stand in front of a camera live with no script, no idiot sheet, no auto cue, and look down the barrel of a camera and just do it without a mistake and without a rehearsal and without reruns and editing and cutting, he is um, as good as there is, and I have no embarrassment to say that at all. I will criticise him if I think he should be criticised. I can't think of what I'd criticise him over, but um, 
He is a genuine television star. You still friends? Absolutely. Uh, friendship, Stephen, is unconditional. Um, you, if you're an unconditional friend, if there's conditions on your friendship, you become an acquaintance. Um, uh, if I'm a friend of someone's, no matter what, unless it's something seriously uh, criminal, which I'd still be their friend, but I probably, uh, for various reasons, wouldn't mix them because uh, that's just the way it is. But um, I'm an unconditional friend of only about four or five people I know, but I'm unconditional. I must say, once someone once asked me if you were overseas and you got picked up by the police and thrown in jail and only had one person back in Australia to call, who would you ring? And I think I said you for some strange reason, but uh, I know you would have answered the phone and you would have helped out. You've worked with some incredible characters. I mean, the list is too long to go into all of them, but um, AW, 3AW, you had uh, a long career at 3AW on radio, worked there from 1981 to 1999 on radio. Um the yep. numbers of people there, Rex Hunt, Harry Beitzel, Kevin Bartlett, Ron Barassi, Robert Walls. Uh, tell us Bill about Jacobs. Tell us, Bill Jacobs, the great Bill Jacobs, who <laughs> he and I had a great relationship on yeah, and off. Yeah, no, he <laughs> didn't have too many good relationships with Bill, but I was a great friend of Bill's. Uh, I uh, was on the same wavelength than him, on him, and that is the beauty of all those uh, uh, all those uh, combinations of people you mentioned. They're all intrinsically different. and um, that's what makes for interesting listening or viewing. Take me into the commentary box at the MCG on Grand Final Day 1989 when Dermot Brereton got cleaned up by Mark yep. Yates in the square yep. at the start of the game. How was Ron Barassi's yep. comments that day? Ah, uh, look there. And, um, and we I'm love Ron. We love Ron. I'm, I was just going to say, I'm not laughing at Ron. I'm laughing with him. He is about the most genuine person you'll ever meet. And Rex, uh, was uh, just building to peak. a crush. He was at his building, peak. building to a crescendo in those days. He Rex tried to outdo himself on every broadcast he did, and by the end of the season, uh, he was uh, like he had a head of steam that would have blown the top off a building. And so we're there at the uh, game, and the game starts. And 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 as you said, uh, this is when Mark Yates ran through Dermot Brereton at the opening bounce. And Rex's call went something like, and um, umpire Darren Goldspink holds the air conveyance into the atmosphere and bang, slams it onto the rubber knob. And oh my goodness, Mark Yates has run through Dermot Barrett and God almighty, what mayhem is a pack involved here? It's just congregating Ron Barassi, please, special comments. And Ron said, I'm sorry, Rex, I dropped my pen under the desk and I didn't see what happened. And Rex said, for Christ's sake, Ron, make it up. This is radio. Tell us what you saw. And Ron said, I didn't see anything. Rex said, Ron. And then I took over then or someone else did and we all just made it up. And uh, it was the most uh, memorable thing I've ever seen. Uh, the greatest incident that's ever happened before a grand final and Ron had dropped his bio and was under the desk trying to get it. But what that story tells you is a lot about Ron Barassi. Ron Barassi. He has uh, such a strong character yeah. and is such an honest person that he wouldn't make it up. 
because Ron would just tell you exactly what happened and the rest of us would make it up and we'd look at the replay and pretend we'd seen it happen live. Ron just told you exactly what happened. He was involved in another famous incident or number of – I mean, my favourite period of (laughs) 3AW football was when Rex Hunt was calling – uh, with either Shane Healy or Anthony Hudson, who Anthony's gone on to become a superstar on Fox, uh, yeah. and Ron Barassi and yourself were doing special comments. There's two two moments, that, two times that come to, to mind immediately. Uh, you and Rex did uh, try and hint at one stage during that period that Ron might have been an occasional user of marijuana. That didn't end only, that well, did it? No, only because Ron suggested... Uh, we were talking about something and he, someone said to Ron, have you ever smoked marijuana? Or, or, or Rex saw it. There was, there was weeds growing in the gutters of the Graysmith stand at the MCG and Rex said, looks like marijuana to me, Ron. And, and Ron said, does it, Rex? And Rex said, have you ever smoked marijuana, Ron? And Ron said, Ron, being honest again, could have, should have said, of course I haven't, Ronnie, but well, not that it mattered. Rex, he said, but he said, I've had one marijuana cigarette in my life, maybe two. Well, Rex loved this. He got this tape recorded, and every time he pretended to ask a question to Ron, he'd press the button, and Leo O'Keefe, who was the uh, panel operator, he used to play this. I've had one marijuana cigarette, maybe two. And what did you say, Ron, uh, when uh, uh, the player came to you at half time and said, I want to play at Senar Ford? What did you say to him? And he'd press the button. He said, I've had one marijuana cigarette, maybe two. Well, Ron got the bracing bits with this one day and said so much, uh, said direct, he said, if you play that one more time, I'll leave. I don't know if you were listening to this in the car. Maybe you were the producer um, at, at the time. And uh, so Rex played it again after something, and you hear a thump as Ron's put his headphones onto the desk, and he just left the box, got in his car and drove home. And uh, so he called Rex's bluff. And the, and the other the other time was that we were, we were in, it was getting pretty hot in the MCG in the box we we're at, and the air conditioning was on. And Rex thought it was hot because he'd got himself into a fever, and he said, Could you turn the air conditioning off? And Ron said, I'll turn it off. And what he did is he pulled the plug out of the whole electrical <laughs> system in the box and put us off air. And so, <laughs> what happens is when when um, when the station goes blank because of a power failure, what happens is that music comes on just uh, to fill in, so that people know that we're still there, but uh, the pro- we've lost the program temporarily. And the music was green sleeves uh, that <laughs> used to come on, and so Ron Rex is song, and the ball comes down there, and Ron, I want you to tell us one. And there's a five seconds delay because Ron's pulled us off air. He's pulled the plug out and thought it was the air conditioning plug and it was the plug that actually operates the equipment. So Rex said, and the ball uh, comes down. Ron, what did you think of? Alas, my love, you do (laughs) me wrong to cast. (laughs) So Greensleeve started to play. So Ron's uh, pulled us off air, he has, uh, for about 10 minutes till we could get that all organised and the uh, auxiliary power up. So we had many, many humorous days with Rex and Ron and all the others and Bill Jacobs. The love-hate relationship Bill and Rex had with one another was you had to be there to you had to be there to enjoy it. Yes, I, I probably would have rung to complain about that reference uh, to marijuana and Ron, and I know that he was very upset about it. But uh, I had a problem. I never told anyone this before. I actually 
I'm not sure whether I should say this, but I will. Um, I actually was in a room with Ron and marijuana at one point. And so I could hardly ring up and say, don't have a crack at him, because I think I might have actually had a small smoke of marijuana with Ron Barassi in a dress, dress shop of all places in Chapel Street in South Yarra. A, a small spliff, as they oh, say, Stephen. I have And um, I can't remember ever having a spliff with Ron, but I'm <laughs> uh, like everyone. I've uh, had a marijuana cigarette in my life. Everyone tries something eventually in their life, and uh, there'd be no one in Australia, I wouldn't think that, well, there would be a few, I suppose, that uh, would admit to it anyhow that they haven't had a spliff every now and again. My other fun, uh, my other great story with, with you guys when you were at your peak. It was a Saturday afternoon. The weather was turning foul. There was uh, dark clouds approaching from Geelong, and it was clearly going to rain very heavily. And Rex said, uh, I imagine that the Weather Bureau shortly will be releasing a a, a sheep weather re- alert yeah. to the F- grazers H- of the H- West. <laughs> of the right, Western an F- Districts. An F-H-E-E-P, sheep yeah. weather alert. What did Ron say? Standard so that's a standard thing when you warn the farmers that the sheep might be under severe trouble because there were storms brewing. So Rex said, "We've um, it's a sheep weather alert. And Ron said, no, no, Rex, he said a sheet weather alert. Sheet, S-H-E-E-T, uh, sheet weather alert. Bed sheets. Yeah, bed sheets. And Ron said, uh, Rex said, no, it's a sheep weather alert, Ron. What are you talking about? And Ron said, <laughs> it's not, Rex. He said, it's sheep to let the housewives know to bring the sheets in off the line. And Rex said, you'd be joking, Ron, wouldn't you? <laughs> so he rang up Ivan Snodgrass from the Meteorological Society, uh, the Weather Bureau, and he got Ivan Snodgrass. He said, uh, just before we go to uh, speak about uh, doing a uh, giving a game preview, I've got Ivan Snodgrass on. He said, Ivan, when you... Uh, issue a warning to the farmers, what do you say? He said, well, Rex, we say we, uh, we're just giving the farmers a sheep weather alert. Not sheep as in bed sheets. He said, no sheep. Well, Ron and Rex had an argument. I said, you've just got it from Ivan Snodgrass, Ron. What's wrong with you? This went on for 10 minutes. Uh, so Ron finally uh, conceded that it probably wasn't a sheep weather alert. It was a sheep. Well, Ron even said, well, what does that mean? Do the farmers get all their sheep and put them in the shed? Uh, I know. <laughs> Look, we, these uh, nonsensical conversations. In fact, I think probably Ron was playing us on a break. He had his tongue in his cheek firmly most of the time he spoke to us and we never caught on. I, uh, I, hope, that's, I, hope, I'm, I hope that's the case anyhow. And we love him dearly. We love Ron Barassi. Let's talk about modern day football. You don't like it much, do you? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, but... Um, I've said this plenty of times. It uh, doesn't worry whether I like it or not. It's a very popular game and people couldn't care less how it's played necessarily. If you're a fan of a side, you don't care how they play as long as they win. And um, I think most people who look at games in days gone by from the 70s, 80s, 90s, well, from this late 70s or the 70s up until the start of the century would think that the game is far more exciting and far more appealing for its aesthetic quality. The players are very skillful, but the coaches have turned it into a um, contrived contrived pack of rolling pack of nonsense. And um, 
that's why I, most of the skills that we, most of the highlights of the game that we used to love are the designated goal kickers, the high markers, the, 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 the man-on-man contests have gone and it's turned itself into a completely different game. It's reminiscent of um, Premier League soccer where they kick the ball backwards and they uh, eventually try and work it into a position where they score. And um, I, I, it's just not appealing to me, but that is the least of anyone's worries. If you love the football, it's a very popular game. Um, good on you. I, it doesn't grab me at the minute. Let's finish up talking about one of your other passions, and that's American politics. W- what attracted you to an interest in American politics? And it's not just, as I know, uh, because of the larger-than-life character of Donald Trump, although that's made it a, a much more interesting thing to, to watch and observe. Why did you get interested in American politics in in the first place? It's a very good question, Stephen. I I, um, I become fascinated by the disparity, the diverse way that you could portray something that was actually you could see happening, and how two different stations, the rival stations that I watch anyhow, Fox News, owned by Rupert Murdoch and CNN that was started by Ted Turner, Mm. to see them comment on the thing that you're watching in such a a polarised way fascinated me. And when Donald Trump came down the escalator, um, uh, this man who was not a politician, who was a showman, a salesman, came down and took not only ripped the living suitcase out of the Republican competitors he had to get the nomination, but then went on to uh, debate Hillary Clinton and beat her in the unlosable election that she was in. I just thought it, it, you, you couldn't make reality television any better than that. And no matter what you think of Donald Trump, he has completely captivated the whole of world politics. There's not one conversation that goes on anywhere almost around the world, certainly not in America where Donald Trump is not at the forefront of either getting a belting or getting uh, traduced or bagged or criticised. It is absolutely fascinating to see that a man who probably has, um, uh, whether you believe the statistics or not, they're not his statistics, but has uh, the unemployment and immigration and uh, world affairs and Chinese and the NATO and North Korea, uh, goes all over the world and has, it is extraordinary that they can't give him one bit of cre- not one bit of credit, uh, his opposition, for anything he's ever done. They've impeached him over nothing, uh, absolutely nothing, and that's been found to be the case. It's just fascinating to watch. And when I get home, I watch. I like to think I'm pretty balanced, although I, I do I do have a bias for Trump. But I watch CNN and I watch Fox, and I, I'm just staggered at how the for commenting on the same thing can have such be so polarized and so dishonest, probably from both sides. It's amazing. Seems America to me, without exaggerating, is almost on the edge of anarchy. You've got cities where they're talking about sacking the police force. You've got a, a situation in Seattle where they've taken over a large part of Seattle and declared it an independent part of that city. Um, America's in a pretty parlous state at the moment. I mean, is, is Donald Trump good for keeping that from falling over? I mean, he's not showing this. I mean, I, I 
I, I predicted Trump would win last time. I just don't know whether they don't need someone a little more stable to be leading that country given the state it's in at the minute. Well, my view of it is that every single thing that's happening in the states at the minute, whether it be um, complaining about police brutality or, or white supremacy or white privilege or immigration or burning the country to the ground or looting or Black Lives Matter or race, every single thing is indirectly aimed at blaming Trump to get him out of office. And every single thing has an indirect aim and it's about Trump. And I, I don't understand why, um, I, I don't understand why they detest him so much, maybe because he's uh, been an interruption to their very cushy way of life in Washington and about the politicians that lie in their pockets on both sides of the uh, fence uh, with uh, lobbyists and uh, countries they deal with. And he is the only man now, look, I'm not, I'm not a, <laughs> spoke, well, certainly not a spoken for him, but he is the only man that I know of in Australian politics maybe with one exception, in Australian politics and Maripos, who is in it for the right reason. He doesn't have to be in it. He's not, he gets, he will be, end up being poorer when he's finished as opposed to every other president and prime minister in Australia that gets richer for the experience of being prime minister or president. He's got much more to lose than anyone else, but I think he's actually doing it for the right reason because he loves the country as opposed to, most of his opposition to give the impression that they uh, dislike the country they live in and want to change it radically. It's very surprising that it, that someone hasn't uh, tried to assassinate him. I mean, we're talking about a country that, of course, saw yep. you know, JFK, Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King all, all taken down because people didn't like the way that the direction that they were taking in, in politics. It's surprising that Trump hasn't faced assassination himself. I, I guess there's been re- there's been threats to him. Oh, threats! I would say uh, there were. Uh, I would say the um, Secret Service and the people charged to protect him would be absolutely work overtime dealing with threats and genuine attempts to harm him. How he hasn't, um, how he hasn't been assassinated. If you consider the climate, that what's going on there is amazing. But. Um, uh, he he does uh, the rallies. He steps out in public. He um, uh, won't be a prisoner in his own country, I suppose. And um, uh, it will be fascinating to see what happens to that country. Um, how how in all honesty anyone could side with this is even the Democrats side with Joe Biden, who is who has clinically got dementia and is senile. How they could say. Now, come on, Joe. You better step aside. Let's see if we let's see if we can get someone who uh, is credible to be in opposition to Trump. And he is just a puppet. There is no doubt he is there. And the vice president, whoever Biden picks as vice president, will genuinely be the uh, titular head of that uh, party. They'll be the uh, incumbent president, and Joe will just be sitting in a room in a chair, like like weekend at Bernie's. Sam Newman, thank you very much for giving us so much of your time. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for listening to On The Record. Join me in the next episode as I chat with the fabulous Kerry Ann Kennelly. Talk to her about her enduring media career and the tragic passing of her loving husband, John, and her thoughts on how 
the rest of the world has gone PC mad. Now everybody's, you know, it would appear is a racist or, you know, they throw that word away. They don't really even know what racist means because everybody is apparently uh, that has a different opinion. The dead person is a racist. 